to um, just say a couple of things about our speaker and not take up too much of his time. Uh, so anyway, um, one year ago, uh, on a Saturday of this event, yesterday, one year ago yesterday, uh, this man, Tony Dotson, Tony D, for the record, uh, <laughs> introduced me to the podium. I was your Saturday afternoon speaker uh, that Pam did such a wonderful job with this year. Uh, she, she took my place uh, for Saturday. And, uh, but Tony introduced me Saturday, and I had the privilege and the honor and, and, and the grace to be your, your speaker last year and, and, and tell you about a little bit about how I had been saved and about my work in corrections and, and about uh, how important it is. And so it, uh, it's double pleasure this morning to introduce a man that's been in my life for uh, many, many years. Uh, we're close friends. We do a, a lot of stuff together. And um, I just think the world of him and his family. And that's what I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is we're not a meeting. We're a family. And we're alcoholics in action. And, and this is a, a spirit foundation. So I know his wife and his daughter. And, and I, I, know his, uh, I know his past. And, and I, know his, I, I know his future because his, his future is in God's hands. He's, he's placed it there. And so... Um, it's, it's my privilege and an honor to introduce Tony. Good morning. Tony Dotson, alcoholic. It's good to be here, good to be sober. I know that won't mind. Um, heard something drop. I, um, I tell you, this is a, a powerful conference. Thanks, thank you to every panelist, every speaker. Pam did such a great job. Everybody, Matt. You know, I was listening to that first panel yesterday morning. I was going, man, I'm glad I don't have to follow them. And then the next one came, and the next one came, and then I heard Matt last night, and I said, that's just my luck. I'll draw the card to speak on Sunday morning after Matt. I'm like, my goodness, that guy right there was a great talk. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be up here again. Um, I served as your 2017 to 2018 Area 51 Corrections Coordinator, and uh, I know how much work it takes to put this conference on. I know how many sleepless nights I had worrying about making sure the stage was going to get set up and that, that uh, he'll be, Tom will be here with the coffee and, and um, my man Moore, Steve, and Nettie would have the ice cream and Daniel was stressing over the sweet things, and we were all working hard to make sure when this thing comes off because... We all love Tom so much. We wanted every time we opened these doors to freedom from bondage, we wanted to have the same reverence and the same effectiveness that we had at the old Holiday Inn down the street, you know. That was my very first freedom from bondage conference. And I walked in there with my sponsor, and, and it's the first time I'd ever been to this conference. And, man, it was just so powerful. I was like, where's this been all my life, you know? I need that kind of I need to tap into that kind of spiritual power and that kind of effectiveness. So I'm extremely grateful to be here this morning. Um, you know, I'm, I'm charged to tell you, as my sponsor told me this morning, Tony, just tell you a story. Um, I'm charged to tell you in a general way what I used to be like, what happened, and what I'm like now. So my sobriety day is June the 13th, 1987. My home group is the Working With Others group in Andrew, North Carolina. We meet every Monday night at 7 o'clock. 
We have a rolling format. The very first Monday of every month, we study the tradition corresponding with the month. The second Monday, we study the step corresponding with the month. The third is a open literature. Right now, we're still in the big book. We made a group conscious to go beyond the first 164 pages, and we're reading all the way through the stories. And what that looks like is we have this table, and I told Jerry this morning, you know, we used to say that there was a very few of us. We started, sometimes there'd be four during COVID. I'd be the only one that would show up and open the door. And our church, thank God, let us stay open the whole time. We never shut down. We only added Zoom as a way to reach out to people that couldn't make it or wouldn't make it. And, uh, and we made it through that. Our little group is over eight years old now. And that's a direct result of being plugged into an effective group called the Willow Springs Group. And that's where I met Jerry and Paige and Wallace and Tom. And, and and got plugged in. I was being sponsored by Robert Holland at the time, and Dave Cook was Robert's sponsor. So Dave was my grand sponsor. So I've, all the giants that you hear of in North Carolina, I've had a personal direct connection with these men. They had an effect on my life, and um, it was powerful. It made a difference. It changed the whole trajectory of my life and my sobriety. Um, that home group got me involved. Um, I'd been part of good home groups, as you'll hear. But, but there was something special about that group. Uh, my wife, Samantha, and I were dating, and, uh, and I would take her to our open. She's not one of us. I met her in college, and um, she would come on our Thursday night open speaker meetings, and how important that is, and I'm glad that, that Paige talked about the family because I wouldn't have a family if it wasn't for the spiritual principles that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous and learned how to apply them in every area of my life so that I could be a good person that you might want to spend the rest of your life with. Um, and what that looked like for her was she came and she's never been to AA before. Never knew anything about it except the fact she was my study buddy in college for every year. We were friends. And she watched me and knew my schedule and what I was doing. And when she walked in that first meeting, after that meeting, she says, you don't think I've ever experienced anything quite like that before. What the word she was looking for was unity. But what she said was love, you know, so much love and so much respect for each other and camaraderie, and, and it was unity. It was the effectiveness of that, you know. And we studied the traditions. That format came from the Willow Springs group, similar to what we did there. So I remember the first time that um, I met Tom was at a workshop we had on a Saturday, and him and John Blandon, who was up here, Steve P. talked about that yesterday, him and John arguing. I had I was the chair, and I asked Steve to share that Saturday night speaker, and him and John was arguing about who was going to sit over there. I said, that's two real drunks right there, you know, Gar, you're going to sit. And, uh, but um, I, I just, I, I met John for the first time. He was the grapevine, the area grapevine. He came with Tom to do that workshop. And I met so many wonderful people that had taken time out of their lives to take service positions to allow Alcoholics Anonymous to be available to others. And that's what I found out about it. Alcoholics Anonymous is, is not a meeting my sponsors. Alcoholics Anonymous is a group of alcoholics in action. And, and what, I've, what, I've, what I've learned throughout from my very first home group is, is that what that looked like for me was that people accepted me when no one else would. People loved me when I couldn't love myself. People took the time and the patience to explain to me the importance of the reverence of how we behave in an AA meeting. I got sober, like I said, in 1987, and it was a, could be a tumultuous time in an AA meeting if you get in there and start talking about drugs. <laughs> they might ask you to leave. I'll tell you you belong somewhere else. Um, but, but thank God for good sponsorship 
my first sponsor taught me what I call AA etiquette. He said, Tony, when you go in this meeting tonight, because he knew I, I came from the other fellowship. He met me there. He said, when you go in this meeting tonight, I want you to say two things. I said, okay, what's that? He said, I'm Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. I passed. Don't say nothing else. I can do that, but I wanted to talk. He goes, Tony, the only thing you got to talk about is drinking, and I'm pretty sure everybody in there knows how to do that. My name's Tony. I'm an alcoholic, and I passed. And I saw when I watched other people come in that didn't have good sponsorship who got in there and started giving initials on the end of their name like they were lawyers or doctors or something, and they were anda, anda, anda. Oh, man, they did not get treated well in AA at that time. Uh, so I learned from a sponsor how to behave in AA. So um, what, uh, what I'm supposed to do, and, and we usually qualify even like, uh, where's my man Jason? He did such a good job. Um, qualifying is always an important part, and, and Steve taught me that. Whenever you're doing a topic talk or anything like that, be sure and qualify that your position, that you're there. You're not just there as an authority or an information or anything like that, that you're just another alcoholic who has been given the opportunity to share some experience, strength, and hope. And so in, in sharing in a general way what I used to be like and what happened and what I'm like now, and, and there is a solution that says is that, that each person in his own way in his own language talks about how he formed a relationship with God that became effective enough that gave me the power I didn't have so I didn't have to drink anymore. And, and what that looked like for me was I was seven years old. So I beat Jason by a year. I was seven years old and um, I took my first drink of alcohol and loved everything about what I was about to do because I'm going to paint this picture for you. I, was, uh, I had a stepfather two stepdads. I never met my biological father. My grandparents adopted me at birth. And um, so my uncle Jim, he kind of looked like, uh, he did, he looked like Sergeant Carter from Gomer Pyle. We'll just go ahead and get that out there. And, um, and, and he was my hero. He had that flat top haircut. He was, he was a, um, a military sergeant. He was MP in the Marine Corps when he was in there. And all the men in the neighborhood respected him. And uh, he worked at the paper mill like all my family did, except for my uncles that were farmers and my mother that worked at the A&P store. And, uh, and it, it just a good blue-collar family. Um, and I was down there at his house, and I loved to go down on Sundays because me and my cousin would get out there, and his nickname was Buckshot. So you know what I was working with. I got Sergeant Carter and Buckshot. Um, and I'm down there, and we're playing football in the backyard, and, and my uncle says the game's on, so we come in, and we're going to sit down and watch football. My aunt's in the kitchen popping popcorn with a pot and a lid, not a microwave in a bag, y'all. And it's just raising the top off, filling the house, this wonderful smell. And she comes in, she's got this Pepsi bottle and a jelly glass. And back then, if you don't know, you bought jelly, it came in a glass, and you collected them, you got a whole series. Blue-collar people now. And... Um, <laughs> She come in there and she took that jelly glass and she poured half that Pepsi in there and set it down. And me and my cousin immediately, I got to fight this guy. I did tell me he only liked a week. He went quite a year older than me. And, uh, and I, I fighting him for that bottle because there's something about our fixation with bottles. I don't know what that sissy glass was about, but neither one of us wanted any part of it. She better just left it in the bottle and let us share or something, you know. But um, we're wrestling over that bottle, and my uncle comes in and sits down. And he's got his beautiful red, white, and blue can. He's got salt on the top of it. He sits down and he takes a big old pull and he goes, ah, I lost all interest in the football, the popcorn, the Pepsi, and all that. I want to know what was in that red, white, and blue candy. He went, ah, when he took that first pull. 
So I began beating on him, you know, I want to taste that. What is that about, you know? And my, and my cousin, we're beating on him, beating on him. He's like, no, your mom will kill me. No, no, no. And finally we beat him into a state of reasonableness, as the big book says. <laughs> and so he grabs my cousin by the neck and he just wets his lips a little bit with it, you know. My cousin does like this and backs up and I'm, he brings that thing over my way and I just grab it away from him and turn my back and... I turn it up, and I get as much as I can for he wrestles it away from me. And I like a, a hamster. My jaws are full. It's starting to come out my nose. And I swallow, and it goes down, and I burp real loud. And I'm like, man, I loved everything about that drink of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer now. It tasted good. It was crisp and clean and refreshing. I burp really loud. And it don't get any better than doing that with my Uncle Jim and buckshot and watching football. That's as manly manager get drinking PBR on a Sunday watching football. That's American and manly right there, you know. I was in. I'm all in for this. And I can tell you, as, as Dr. Silkworth says, you know, I did not drink alcoholically from that moment on. But I drank enthusiastically from that moment on. I love to taste a beer. If you left one unattended, I would help myself. If you sent me to the refrigerator or the cooler, so we had a big family, so we go on vacation down at Oregon Inlet. We live close to the Outer Banks, so we go vacation at Oregon Inlet. Now, we're poor folks. We're putting the tents at the Oregon Inlet National Park campground. So we got tents all out. A couple of them got campers, you know, and screen houses and big old family vacation. But they had coolers full of drinks and beer. And those kids were runners. I know y'all were runners. Y'all probably changed the channel like I did. I was a remote control. I walk up and turn the channel for them, adjust the rabbit ears and, you know, I would, uh, I would run to the cooler. I would volunteer to go get beer because here's the deal. If I can get that thing open, you got to pay the beer tax before it comes back to you because I'm going to get me some before I take it to you, if I bring it to you. Now, I would, uh, most of the time I was a good boy. I'd take it to you because I didn't want you to stop asking me to go get them. So I would, uh, I would enjoy a few swallows of that beer. And, you know, everybody's got all these fancy beers now, man. They've got these craft breweries and all that stuff. Man, we were drinking Falstaff and Schlitz and Country Club and PBRs and might be a Budweiser in there every now and then, you know, get excited over middle high life, the champagne of beers, you know. And, um, you know, I was in a bottle. That tasted a whole lot better than a bottle than that can, you know. I was learning to step up a little bit. And, um, but that's kind of what my drinking started at. It was exciting. It was the forbidden fruit. And, and it just was camaraderie and family and, and, and joyousness, as the big book says. And it was exciting. And, and I loved all of that. And I bought into that. And when I was about 13 years old, I had something else happen. You know, I got by with it for a right good while. I was 13 years old. And we had a camp out. Us boys planning on camping out. And it was in the springtime of the year, about this time of year. And uh, all the, the saltwater fish that are Andromedas, they swim upstream to spawn in the Roanoke River. And they'd swim past us. And they'd go up to Weldon and uh, the rockfish capital of the world, and, uh, and go up there and spawn and then come back down the river. And so all these river herring were coming through there, and we'd go out there and set these nets, catch these river herring, and we'd cook them along the creek bank and have, you know, fresh roe and cornbread and hush puppies and fish. And these guys would come because they knew us boys was down there fishing and catching and cooking. They'd come in them pickup trucks and drop them tailgates and them coolers just slide out. Here come the country club, the slit malt liquor and the bulls and everything else, and we'd start trading fresh fish for beer. That was a fair trade for us, man. And, uh, and they ate good and we drank good. 
Well, I never had an opportunity to where somebody wasn't managing how much I drank or I was limited in some form or another. I was always limited to how much I drank. They had never let the bull out the cage before till that night. Been better off they left him in there. So here's how it went. This is what it looked like. So I'm probably about 13 years old, 12, 13 years old, best I can remember. We had our tent pinched over here. The guys were hanging out. We got a fire. We're cooking and eating and drinking. These old guys are getting drunk. We're getting drunk. We're having a large time. And the next thing I know, man, I'm coming to in that tent, soaking wet, freezing cold, head busting, trying to figure out what in the world happened. One minute I'm having a fantastic time, and the next minute I'm cold, wet, and frustrated. What in the world just happened? So I woke up all them boys in that tent picking fights with them because I knew they'd throw me in that creek that night, or I fell out of the boat. Something happened, I got wet. Well, I made them all so mad picking fights with them, they were just going to tell me exactly what happened. They said, this is what you did, Tony. said, number one, after you got drunk enough, you jumped in the fire. You started a fight with a grown man, which was not a good idea. <laughs> then, after you did all that, you picked a fight with the rest of us. Then you jumped in the creek, swam out to the no-wake buoy, rocked on that thing for a little while, swam back, went in the tent, passed out. I said, man, y'all were lying to me. I know they were lying to me. I could not have done all that stuff. That was not me. He's, all of them agreed at the same time you did. I thought, man, that's not good. But I'll tell you one thing I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to do it again, boy, because I knew the next time was going to be better. And, that man, I can stop talking about drinking right now because I drank a many a time for that next time that was going to be better. What that looked like for me is that every time I went out to prove that I could drink like other people, as the big book says, it was a 50-50 shot that I was going to be successful or unsuccessful. When I was unsuccessful, it looked like this. Total lost cars. I flipped one one night. I was coming back from Greenville, North Carolina. I had been going to community college over there. Drank my way in and out of that in about a year and a half. I did manage to make it through high school, by the way. I flipped the car so many times when it landed, it was upside down. The wheels were turning like a little bug with his legs moving, and I was laying out in the field. It had thrown me out the hatchback. It was a Chevy Spectrum, if y'all remember them things. And it had thrown, the seat went back. I went out, went out the hatchback, and the car did like this and landed upside down. I'm laying in that field, and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm pretty good. And I look, and I see a light off in the distance of a farmer's house. I said, we'll go wake that old boy up and get things moving here. You know, that's what I did. Now, what that looked like about an hour later was a state patrolman was there. My parents had come. And I'm standing there talking to that state patrolman, and my mom says to this day, I was standing there, and I was doing just like this. She said, you couldn't be still if your life depended on it. She said, that man stood there and talked to you. and says, I think he just felt sorry for you. She was ready to kill me. I'd woke them up at 2 o'clock in the morning yet again because of my drinking escapades. Total lost another car and was about to get arrested for drunk driving right in front of my parents. And uh, I guess that state trooper felt like I was in good hands going home. That was one of the only times that I did not get a drunk driving ticket when I pulled something like that. I think he felt sorry for me. That was an unsuccessful night. The next time I went out and I had a really good time, it was a success. And it would flip-flop back and forth. And I know y'all's drinking did the same thing. What that looked like was I was about 16 years old, had 30 days of, of experienced driving behind my belt, I want y'all to know. I got my license at the end of January. I'd had been driving on permit, but I got my license at the end of January. 
It was now February going into March. We had a nor'easter blow in. It was snowing pretty down east. I had a 68 Ford Falcon three-speed on the column, three on the tree. And um, if y'all remember, they had vacuum wipers on those things. And for those of you that don't know what that's like, when you speed up, they slow down. When you slow down, they speed up. So you're going fast and slow, fast and slow to clean the snow off your windshield. And um, we drive up, my buddy and I, and what we did, you remember the old acronym where it's blank, gas, or grass, or no one rides for free, and um, to be respectful. So we all pull our resources. So we had cigarettes we'd swipe from our parents, beer and stuff we'd swipe from our parents. And so we're all riding around having a good time. And um, we're running low on resources. So my buddy says, take me to the Big Star. I got some money. We'll go get some, some beverages. So he goes into Big Star, and he's wearing like an old Army trench coat or some kind of utility coat thing. And he goes into the grocery store, and we're all sitting there, and these girls pull up side of us. And so we're planning this big bonfire. It's snowing. We're going down to the river. We're country kids, y'all. We're going to make some excitement. So we got a plan. we got a big fire going. We're going to have some music. We're going to just have a really good time. These girls are in. we got it locked in. By the time my buddy jumps in the back seat, and he goes, drive, man, drive, like a getaway from a bank robbery or something, you know. And we're like, what is up with this guy? This is not a – this ain't a getaway car. You jumped in the wrong car, dude. So so I pull it. We tell the girls goodbye, and I pull on off, and I'm going through. And we're going through neighborhoods now. We've been drinking beer up to this point. And he starts pulling out wine from places I didn't know you could put wine. He's got the best Richards Wild Irish Rose, Mogan David, that Mad Dog 2020 back there, and and Thunderbird, and we're going to shake it up, man. We, we popped the top on them things, and we went to drinking that wine, and we had Cool Filter Kings, Cool Miles, Red Flip Top Marlboros. We, were, we, were, we hit the jackpot. So I'm, I've got my Red Flip Top Marlboro in my finger, and I'm changing gears, and I hit the dashboard, and that thing goes in the floorboard. No old cars, thank God, didn't have carpet. They had rubber like a truck. So, so in the, in the steering had about a half a turn play in it, you know. So I'm watching this thing rolling down here, and I said, yeah, I can get that. And so I, I move it over, and I, I go down, and I get it. When I come up, there's headlights coming at me, and he's blowing his horn. So I jerk over this way, and he goes by, and the boys just bust into laughter. That car goes down in the ditch. It's snowing good now. That car goes down in the ditch, and it turns around and comes out, and I have my blue light experience. The whole world lit up. That's old bubblegum type thing. The whole world lit up blue. Like being in a black light in your room when you was a teenager. The whole thing, it tore me up so bad I pulled in the ditch on my side of the road. <laughs> all that 30 days experience driving, you know, under the form of alcohol and all that. So I'm sitting there, and the car's on a hill. So he's getting out, and he's walking toward the car, and I'm thinking, I got to get out of this car. Because here's what happens to a guy like me. I never knew how to gauge how much to drink. I was like everybody else you heard up here today. Once I started to drink, it never crossed my mind. Tony, you're a small guy. Two beers, two tall buds is probably all you need to do. That'd be a good, that's a good fit for you. That never crossed my mind. It was feeling good right now. It's going to feel even better in a few minutes if I keep drinking. And, um, and, and I was sitting in that car, and that guy started walking up, and I began to sweat bullets. I mean, big, big, big thumb-sized drops. I'm raining over here. And my stomach begins to roll, my tongue begins to swell, my throat's closing off. I thought, I'm going to die right here, you know. And that guy walks up, and, and I'm now, i got to get out of the car because I'm about to let go of some of that wine. And, uh, and, and I'm opening the door, and he closed the door. And I open the door, and he closed the door. They do not like you to exit the vehicle when they want to talk to you. Roll the window down, give them your driver's license. 
So he asked for all that, and I remember my mom got me one of these little things to put on the visor to put your registration card and stuff in. Thank God for moms, man. I finally got it. I grabbed that thing, and I opened that door, and he shined that light in my face and saw how bad off I was. He moved back because I didn't want to throw up on them patent shoes and them starch pants. And if I threw up on his feet, he'd beat me to death with that big blackjack he has. I just had to get out of there. So I walked away from him, went over behind the bush there, and started painting the snow purple. And, uh, and, and he got all the guys out of the car and got them all over there. And I'm over here, man, and I am just, boy, I'm having a bad time. And I look over there at them guys, and they're all looking up at him like this, and they'd look over at me and go. <laughs> and I looked at them, and I'd go, oh, my God, and I'd throw up some more, and I'd look up, and I'd look back, and they'd look at me and go. And I'd look back, and I don't even want to go over there. And about that time, he's motioning for me to go, and I do not want to go over there. And I go over there reluctantly, and he's telling me and scaring me to death because I'm thinking, my dad's going to kill me. He's always told me if I get in jail, I had to get myself out. I mean, all these worst-case scenarios are running through my mind as they do when we're in this, put ourselves in those situations. And Mr. Mazel goes, Mr. Dotson, today is your lucky day. And he grabs a buddy of mine. He pulls him out of the back. He says, Mr. Dotson, this young man is the only one in that car who's not been drinking. And we all looked at him like he had lost his mind. What do you mean you ain't drinking? Were you thumbing it or something? You're not, you're not drinking. I was more impressed with that than the fact that he won't drinking, you know. And, uh, and, and he says, you know, we're going to let this young man, if you're okay with it, drive you boys home tonight. And I don't want to see this car on the road no more tonight. He said, because if I do, I'm going to lock all you boys up. Now y'all go home. We gone. I'd have gave him that car if he'd let me out. <laughs> All I wanted to do was get out of that. That was not my other experiences other than the one where I spun in a circle after total loss in that little Chevy Spectrum thing. Um, every time, I thought I was a good driver. Didn't y'all think I was a good driver? I drove better when I was drinking. I was relaxed. That's not true, but I thought it was. I wrecked enough cars to prove that contrary. Um, what, what happened to a guy like me was is that I drank my way in and out of a good opportunity. I had opportunity to go to community college. Uh, I did not want to go to Williamston where my mother wanted me to go or Beaufort Community College over in Washington because we lived in Plymouth. I did not want to go there. All my friends were going to either ECU or Pitt Community College. <laughs> Greenville, that's where I'm going. That's the gold spot. I'm going to Greenville. You know, right out of high school, 18 years old, man, I was ready to conquer the world. I'm going there, I'm going to get me a degree in welding, I'm going to come back and get a big job at a paper mill, have me a big house on the river, truck, boat, all that stuff I see that makes a man a man. Cute little trophy wife tucked up under my arm, I got this thing, I'm going to get it done, Dad. And they're looking at me going, oh my God, how long is this going to last? About a year and a half. Um, and that's out of determination on our part, of my willingness to succeed. Um, what happened there was I drank my way in and out of community college. I was in the... The, the dean's office, but not because I was doing well. I was in the dean's office because I was doing poorly. Um, when they told me that they no longer required me to attend classes at Pitt Community College, I knew that was over because I'd already got my second consecutive drunk driving ticket um, before I hardly got out of the court. The first one, I got the second one, so I knew that was over, and um, I was going to have to move back home anyway. But in the interim, I had this wonderful Saturday afternoon plan. I was going down to ECU and watch football game. We loved to go to them football games. We had a lot of student friends that got free tickets, and we'd get in there. We were, you know, we're blue cast, blue-collar kids, and um, we didn't have a lot of money. I was working at Shoney's. My other buddy was working at A&P, and we pulled our resources, and A&P had uh, 
generic beer on sale. It's white can, it's got blue letters, it says beer. Um, <laughs> take that to some of them craft brewers and see what they can do with that. And, uh, and it's a dollar and something a six pack, and we filled, we took all the food out of the refrigerator and completely filled it with beer and made sure we turned them all so you could read beer any way you looked at it. <laughs> College kids, got plenty of time on our hands for stuff like that. Brilliant, brilliant ideas. So last thing I remember was the, the, I think about half of that beer was missing out of that refrigerator. Willie Nelson was on, and somebody put on a Willie Nelson album. That's a vinyl thing you put on the stereo and you put the needle on that plays music. Um, I, uh, I had Willie Nelson going on there, and the last thing I know, when I come to, I think it was either Leonard Skinner or Molly Hatchet, and, and I look around, and there's nobody in that trailer but me, and I'm thinking, man, it's not good to be drinking alone, Tony. That's, you might be an alcoholic if you're drinking alone, you know. I knew all the things that was key signs for trouble drinking. You don't drink alone. You don't drink in the morning. All these things I'm already doing. I'm making reasons why I'm supposed to be able to do it and uh, justifying my drinking. And what I can tell you is, is that I said, man, i got to get out of here. So what do we do? I go to the bar. You know what y'all did? I went to the bar. So I went down to my favorite little foosball bar down there called Pantana Bobs. You ever been to Greenville? You know what I'm talking about. I go down to Pantana Bobs. I'm going to play foosball. And um, now, mind you, I've already been drank enough to pass out, come to, started drinking again. So, you know, this is going to be, this is a good buzz here. I am rocking and rolling. I go in that Pantana Bobs and my ego, I don't know how I got my head through the door, man. I am the foosball wizard. You heard of the pinball wizard? I was the foosball wizard. I rolled in there, and I'm playing foosball, and I'm winning, and I'm drinking good beer now. I moved up to them long neck, ice-cold Budweiser in the bottle that they got to buy you when you lose. You buy the winner of the beer of his choice. I'm drinking them nice, long neck Budweiser. I was graduated from that beer to, to real beer. And they have mantles on the wall there next to the tables, and I had all my empties up there, you know, and I'm winning. I'm having a good time talking smack. I'm sure I was obnoxious, absolutely obnoxious. Somebody didn't knock me out. And um, I finally get drunk enough to lose. They, thank God. I'm sure they were like, man, I'm glad that guy's out of here. And I go outside to cool off because what's happening, I'm beginning to sweat again. My tongue's beginning to swell. My throat's starting. I'm like, man, I just got to go outside and cool off for a little bit. All of a sudden, I'm coming to. I passed out twice in the same day, y'all. That's not a good sign. <laughs> this is Saturday night. God knows what time it is. I have no idea. I hear this little voice, and it's the sweet young lady's voice, and her little boyfriend or husband, I do not know, I know they were a couple, and they were discussing my situation. My situation was I had no shirt on, no shoes, thank God they didn't take my pants. My pockets had been emptied into the alley with the leaves and all the other stuff, because see, I was in an alley behind the bar between there and the little sandwich shop. And I'm listening to them say, you know, we never come through this alley. God brought us through this alley so we could find this poor, unfortunate person. <laughs> Should we call an ambulance? And I opened my eyes. I said, no. no. <laughs> I was hoping they'd leave, you know what I mean? Just go, please. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Drinkers who read this will understand. There was shame, guilt, and remorse stacked on that in layers like lasagna. I have never felt so ashamed and so guilty and so out of place and so absolutely god-awful as I did looking at the face of those two young people, good Christian kids, 
looking at them, figuring out how they're going to help an old boy like me. And all I wanted to do was collect my belongings, thank them, and get the heck out of there. And I drank the next day real hard to push that memory as far back in my mind as I hope it could ever be found. And there was far too many of those things. I found myself going back home, drank my way in and out of everything. I go back home. My stepdad's a tough gut, tough love man. He looks at me. I'm walking down the hall, and I'm meeting him in our home. And he says, boy, I thought that was my name for a long time. I don't know if y'all grew up, but I was boy. Darn, boy, what are you thinking? Boy, what in the world are you thinking? I kept hearing that. Boy, you ain't never going to mount to nothing if you don't quit that drinking, you know. Over and over and over again, he said, boy, you need to join the Navy. Great idea. I take off to Norfolk to the shipyard. I go through the physical. I'm doing everything. No. No, we don't need you, Mr. Dotson. The Navy will be fine without you. So we go over to the shipyard. We're going to get a job building ships. I can't get in the Navy. I'll go build ships for them. Two of them got jobs. Two of us didn't. We drank real hard all the way back. They got to stay. What, what that looked like for me was just another failed attempt to try to get my life together. I managed to um, put together a little bit of time, some, some good behavior with my parents. And they put in a good word for me, and they got me a job. See, I'm sweeping remnants at a sewing factory where they make children's clothes. I'm working part-time because that's all I can get. I worked in the afternoon, and I would sweep up all the remnants around the sewing machines, the scraps, and, and clean up the room and then put them away, me and another couple of other boys. They were high school boys doing this. I'm 21 years old doing this. That's not a good thing. That's not a career choice. And, uh, but that's where my drinking took me. So I asked my stepdad, I said, hey, can you give me a ride to work that day? He said, uh, Brian, who's my younger stepbrother, says, his bicycle's down there in the barn. I'm sure you can probably pump the tires up on that, and that'll get you to work just fine. About eight or nine miles from my house to that sewing factory now, I thought I could catch a ride. He said, no, you can ride that bike. It'll be good for you. Give you some exercise. So here I am now. I'm riding, 21 years old, I'm riding a 10-speed bike that's a little small for me. I got my attic three-quarter baseball shirt on. My Marlboro's tucked up in the sleeve, right? Got to be cool. And I'm riding that bike with my shades on, and I'm riding, and the school buses are passing me, and I'm getting heckled by junior high school kids. Man, I, things are not looking good for the home team. And that was my, that was, I was okay with it. I got to the point where I was actually okay with that. I would ride that bike up there. Sweep them remnants, get that little bit of money, and go out and drink the rest of the night. Throw my bike in the back of somebody's truck or hide it somewhere and go back and get it the next day. And that got to be normal. Me and a buddy of mine, we got so good on our bicycles, we got us a, a, a fifth 151 proof rum and a big old bottle of Coca Cola, and we were drinking rum and Coke driving them 10-speeds. Let me just tell you, that didn't last long. <laughs> too many gears, too many mechanisms, and I couldn't keep it vertical. Um, <laughs> we looked like more like a demolition derby going down the road than we did anything else. But we had a great idea we were going to do that. And that's just the kind of stuff that I did. But I managed to get a job, a secure job with an electrical contractor out of uh, Pantega and uh, went to work out there with them. The guy knew that I had some welding experience, so he gave me a job and paid me pretty good money. And I would trade him doing welding for, for electrical work. He was going to teach me how to be an electrician. And um, I went to work. I'm thinking, great, I got an opportunity. Anything's better than sweeping floors. 
And uh, I go to work for this guy, and I'm working all down at the Outer Banks, and things are looking good. I'm getting my license back, got my car back. Life's looking good. I'm doing well. I met, re-met this girl I had in high school who we couldn't stand each other in high school. And I'm walking to this little restaurant in my hometown, and I thought, who is that cute little girl right there? And she was with a guy I didn't think very much of, so I'm like, well, if she'll date him, I'm a shoe-in, you know. <laughs> we don't have a big ego, right? So I'm just going to bump him off. I didn't care whether he felt like or thought like. I didn't care. I'm just going to bump him off. And come to find out, I said, my God, that's Janice. I said, oh, Lord, I picked on her bad in high school. She is not going to go out with me. I need to rethink that one. But I said, what the heck, you know. So I was flirting with her. She was flirting back. And, man, I said, you know, we're a whole lot different than we were in high school. She said, you were really mean to me in high school. I said, I'm really sorry. She says, but that's okay. All right. I mean, and uh, we started dating. And I got an opportunity to take another job. So I got an opportunity to come to Raleigh. I took a job with a company out of Raleigh doing electrical work at the mill. And it was about a year job. So I left the company I was working with, me and the electrician I was working for, good family man, good Christian man. He and I decided we're going to take the opportunity to move up because in the 80s, if y'all remember, man, there was no jobs. I mean, the economy was tanking, and it was just not a good time to be looking for a job. And uh, fortunately, I had that job. They liked us. We worked hard. They said, hey, when they were pulling out, look, we got a job in Raleigh if you want it when you come. So I packed everything I own. I've moved up now. I've got a 76 Mustang Cobra II hatchback. I'm out of the Ford Falcon, yes, sir. And uh, I put all my belongings in those paper bags and put them in the back with my stereo and the speakers and my crate of albums and uh, all my worthy possessions. And I take off to Raleigh to set up shop. And... Uh, the only problem is that I took Tony with me. And uh, when I got to Raleigh, I did what I did everywhere else. I drank like they drank. I went where they went, and I did what they did. And what that looked like was one Saturday afternoon, I was drinking with my buddies. We built us a bar. I'll have you know, I had two guys. There was a, he was an electrical engineer and, uh, and a pre-med doctor. was my two college students at NC State, and I was a roommate with them. And we built us a bar in our apartment. And we loved to drink, loved to have a good time. I even had my wood paps blue ribbon, my big old pretty paps blue ribbon wood sign up there. And um, we were drinking that Saturday, and I forget what was going on, but we'd been out going to the girly clubs, the topless clubs, doing all that stuff and having a big old time. Well, I then told Janice that, hey, I'm, I got to work this weekend. I'm not going to be able to make it home. And all I want to do is drink and run around with these other guys and have a big time. And so I come in that Sunday afternoon. And there's a note on the refrigerator to call Janice. And I thought, well, who wrote that? Ken's not here. Jeff's gone. I want to know what's up with that. And I come in, and Ken's there. And he said, oh, yeah, Janice called. She wanted you to call her. I said, what'd you tell her? I told her, you and Jeff was down at the bar, and y'all be back in a minute. I'll give you the message. I said, oh, Lord. So I get on the phone with her. And she's not happy because one more time I have lied to her about where I've been, what I'm doing, and all that good stuff. And so like we do, you know, I start making a deal. You know, I start that sweet talking deal, just, you know, we're working out, baby. It's all good. And she said, you know, I don't mind your drinking, Tony. She said, I just don't want you to lie to me all the time about your drinking. Light bulb. Well, if I can learn not to lie to you, I'm okay with drinking. Yeah, you can drink. Just don't lie to me about it. Okay. So I go to work the next day, and me and Larry, Moe, and Curly, we get together, and they come up with this great idea that I can go to the psychiatrist there at Wake County Mental Health Center and I can talk to them about my lying, and they can help teach me not to lie to my fiancé about my drinking. Great idea. 
I go in there. You can't make this stuff up, guys. I go in there, and, and I'm sitting down, and the psychologist see I'm poor. So they base it on what you make. I didn't make much, so I didn't charge much. But they try to get the psychologist to take care of everything. You only see the psychiatrist if you're a really bad case. So it's not a promotion like I thought it was. Um, so I, uh, I'm sitting there, and she comes out, and she interviews me. And she, after, in her interview, evidently she figured I had a drinking problem. So she brings me this pamphlet. And it's kind of like ours. It had questions like, has your drinking ever caused you a problem at home? Has your drinking ever caused you a problem at work? Has your drinking ever caused you a problem at school? Have you ever been drinking when you really didn't want to drink, but you find yourself drinking anyway? And all them good questions, you know. And, and I'm going down there, and, and I'm checking yes, but I want to write why. I want to explain why I check yes. And there's no space there to do that. So I'm writing where I can. I'm turning it sideways. I'm answering these questions. I'm, and she, this thing should take you about five minutes at most if you're a poor reader. You could do it in five minutes. Ten minutes later, she just stops me. She comes and she says, you got to stop. And I said, why? I ain't finished. She said, you're finished. And she took that thing and she walked me in there and knocked on the door and took me in to see the psychiatrist. And that lady's sitting in there and she's got these beads on her glasses. I'll never forget them little glasses, some half glasses with a bead. She's got all them big degrees on the thing, a big old desk, little bitty lady. And um, she's smiling real pretty and she takes that thing and she's looking at me going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she sits it down and she starts asking me questions. But you know, I ain't going to tell her the truth. I'm in there to learn how to not to lie. I'm going to make you earn your money here, you know. She's like, she's. I see you do this and this and you do this. And I said, yeah, on occasion, special occasions, I do some of that because it helps me drink better, you know. I can drink better if I do some. Yeah, I can do that, yeah. And uh, trying about halfway truth, you know. And uh, she starts writing, and I thought, good, I'm in a private practice. I ain't got to come to this public mental health where people see me coming here, think I'm crazy or something, you know. I was insane, y'all. <laughs> And I, I got that piece of paper, and she's sitting there writing on it, and she leans forward, and she takes her glasses off. She hands me, it looks like a business card. And she says, Mr. Dotson, you call them numbers, and after you've been sober for one year, you come back and see me, and I'll see if I can't help you with that dishonesty problem you got. Boy, I was hot. I was mad like a firecracker. I was a shoot I was like a bottle rocket. I didn't know whether to cuss her or just get up and walk out, so I just got up and walked out. And um, as I stand before you today, she was spot on, man. So I went to my first meeting and contacted all the numbers on there like Drug Action of Wake County and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called and went and got interviewed and all that to prove her wrong. And um, as I stand today, we know who was right. Never did have to go back and see her again, though. I had no sponsorship. My A teach me how to be honest because when I heard it read and how it works, and when I think about the wording, the exact wording of that, just blew my mind because I said, you know what? They let liars in AA. I'm going to be safe. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates they are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. So I got sober on a less than average chance. Not a bad deal. But I like that. When I read that, I identified. That was one of my first identifications in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I heard that read, because all my life I had been chastised and fussed at and, and basically just disowned almost because of my inability to tell the truth. 
And here I am in a group of people that absolutely has no problem with that as long as I can learn to be honest. And what my first sponsor taught me about being honest, y'all, was it kind of looked like this, was that, Tony, you just got to be honest with yourself to know that you can't drink successfully any longer. The rest of it will come in time. Now, I'd like to tell you that, that I... Um, I'd like to tell you that that was the end of my drinking. I just got sober and everything went on happy, joyous, and free, and that ain't what happened. What it took for a guy like me was catching a felony position with a tent to distribute, waking up in a hospital, not knowing how I got there, wet again. I don't know what it is about me getting wet when I get drunk. <laughs> Done that a couple of times, went nowhere near water, just drank too much beer and passed out. Um, Y'all figure that one out. <coughs> I came to in that hospital that night, and another time I was bewildered. I was put naked on a gurney. The lights were much brighter than this. I thought I died maybe in purgatory or something. And uh, everything was white in the room. I mean, everything was white. And my throat hurt, my head hurt. I couldn't figure out how in the world I got myself in this position. I looked over there, and there's a chair, and my clothes are in it, and there's water on the floor. Well, how in the world did I get all that? And, and this little nurse pops in about the time she said, oh, you're back with us. And I said, where'd I go? You know, and she said, um, do you know what time it is? I said, no, ma'am, what time is it? She said, uh, about 1 a.m. I said, my God. She said, you know what time they brought you in? I said, no, ma'am. She said, about 6 p.m. The last time I knew I was drinking was about 4 o'clock. I was in the apartment. I got a call. One of them, my college roommate friends, they had a little girlfriend that was a, a cheerleader over at NC State, and she called, and her name was Kathy, and she was sobbing. I mean, she was crying so hard, bless her heart, she couldn't hardly talk. And I was getting her to calm down so I could figure out what was wrong with it. And somebody shot her, she in a wreck, her mom died. I didn't know. She was upset. And she calmed down and finally caught her breath. She said, Tony left me. I thought, man, I got half a fifth of George Dicker. I said, honey, me and George will be right over there. We'll fix that broken heart. You just hold tight. I'm on my way. Out the door I went. I forgot about Janice home and everything. But I'm going to save the day, me and George. Out the door I went. That was when I left. I came to in the hospital. I don't know what happened, that transition in there. The story is between the ambulance driver and the nurse, because it's all hearsay. I have no idea what happened. All I know is I started here and I ended up there. I had went to this party in hopes to grab some stuff that might help me drink successfully. And somewhere in that time, I remember getting hot again and my throat swelling, my tongue. And I think I went outside to cool off again. That was always a thing, thing of mine. I had to go outside and cool off. And they said that what happened was it began to rain really hard. There's a storm drain. Somehow or another, I'm in the storm drain. The water's going down. My coat won't let me float up, so the water's going past me. Somebody finds me in this condition. They pull me out. They think I've drowned. I'm just passed out drunk. I've been drinking liquor all day. And um, they call an ambulance. And what the girl told me at the hospital was, she says, you know, your blood alcohol content, we had to, uh, number one, we had to pump your stomach. We found some controlled substances in your pocket. There's a Raleigh police officer outside. I'd like to talk to you about that stuff. And, uh, and, and your throat's sore because we had to intubate you in order to pump your stomach. She said, we've been putting fluids. I didn't know what the IVs were for. She said, we're putting fluids in to try to flush the alcohol to try to get your brain because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to make it very long if you continue to drink like this. You, you're not going to survive. You, you need to not drink the way you're drinking. You need to stop drinking because you're going to kill yourself if you don't stop drinking. And all I heard was is that, that there was a Raleigh PD outside wanting to talk to me, and everything else turned off, and I got my wet clothes on and I got out of that hospital and I got out of there and what what it looked like for me was is it took almost losing because me and me and my first wife ended up getting married of course and what that looked like for me was when I um 
when I hit that bottom and I caught that charge and I got in trouble, and just a short period after that, she found some more of that stuff in the house and she started to leave. We had a suitcase and she's putting clothes in and I'm taking clothes out. She's putting clothes in, I'm taking clothes out. And what happened was, is I talked to her and I said, look, if you just give me one more chance, I'm gonna get some help. I gotta get some help or I'm not gonna make it. And she says, I'll give you one more shot. And I had been in 85 when I first got that psychiatrist um, diagnosis. I'd been around some programs in 85. I went to NA for a while and I went home one weekend before we got married and I told her we had to change our plans because couldn't make any major decisions in the first year of recovery. And she said, I don't think you need to go to them meetings anymore. And I said, I don't either. And the end result of that was me ending up in the hospital almost dead. Um, what happened for me was is that I surrendered once and for all and I walked into the doors. I went back to a little group called Surrender to Win in NA because I didn't know where I needed to be. And in there, I met a man who became my first sponsor. And when at the end of that meeting, he did not give me a meeting direct me with circles, meetings on circles and things like that. He talked with me about his drinking and he talked with me about my drinking. And he told me there was gonna be a meeting in the morning, be a spiritual meeting, and he wanted me to go with him. And he came and picked me up. And that's the type of sponsorship that gave me an opportunity for success. And when he took me to his first home group, I walked in that first home group, I thought I was in the wrong place. It looked like a business meeting for the church or something. I'd never been to AA before, I'd only gone to the other fellowship. And we walked in there, everybody in that room looked good. I didn't feel good, they looked good. There was a lot of nice cars in the parking lot. And when I got in there and he told me those things I told you in the beginning was to, to just sit down, Tony, say I'm alcoholic. My name's Tony, I'm an alcoholic, and I pass. And what I learned from that process and those good people in that room was they taught me what love and service was. They showed me what love and service was. They introduced me to the literature and Alcoholics Anonymous. And first big book I bought was after an argument with my sponsor over whether or not I had to spend $5 on a big book back in those days. And the end of that conversation was, Tony, shut up, put the $5 in the hat, get the big book off the table on your way out the door. And out of a resentment, I did it. You know, a lot of things I do out of resentment. And um, thank God I did. And, and I bought other literature, and I began to read it. And my reading comprehension back then was, was pretty poor. But my, my wife, Janice, had a, a good vocabulary and was a smart girl. And so as I was reading, I would have to ask her what words meant. And I would ask my sponsor what words meant. And, and I would have to write that down. And my first morning meditation book, not conference approved, we didn't have daily reflections when I got sober. That's all I had to work with. First little black book was the first one I ever read, cover to cover, in a many a year. It took me a day at a time, and I read it every day religiously. And I did what it said. I got on my knees in the morning like I was taught to do and said, please, because I didn't know how to pray. I didn't think God wanted anything to do with me. I'd had too many dirty, rotten things in my life and hurt too many of his children and too many of his people for him to want anything to do with me. Why in the world would he want anything to do with me? No, God don't want anything to do with me. And he said, Tony, trust me. I want you to get on your knees in the morning. And I want you to say, please, when you get on your knees at night, whether you stayed sober or not, I want you to say thank you. That was the beginning of my spiritual journey in Alcoholics Anonymous, please and thank you, something that simple. What happened was I added that little book and I read that book every morning 
and I got deeper and deeper connected to a power greater than myself so I could have what our spiritual experience in the back of the book talks about is a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. That began to happen. I began to want to go to meetings, not have to go to meetings. I wanted to go early with my sponsor, not want to know why we got to go an hour early and stay an hour late. What is that about? That's three hours out of my schedule. I got important stuff to do. I got cigarettes to smoke, grass to mow, you know, I got things to do. Um, and, and every time we got there, I love being a part of AA. I love being in the middle. I love making coffee, cleaning them big machines up. I like putting out the ashtrays, cleaning the ashtrays. As long as you had me around, I had a chance, and I wanted that chance. When we got, got to moving through the, the, um, the program in our home group, I, um, I found it was a whole nother level. It was a whole nother level of AA. I was a nine o'clock guy. Come nine o'clock, I'm leaving the meeting. I might stay around another hour and clean up, but at nine o'clock, I need to get out of that meeting. I need to go smoke a cigarette. I got important things to do. So at nine o'clock, as soon as we said the end of that prayer, I ran out the door. And there was an older lady in our home group, Marie Rich. She was in her 70s at the time. And Marie was one of these old ladies, a salty old gal. She answered the hotline at the, answered the, hotline at the uh, intergroup office in Raleigh for many years and helped a lot of women in doing that. But she caught me out that door that night, and I drug her about halfway down the hall before she got me stopped. And, um, and I was talking through gritted teeth, just mad at the world. Nothing was going right in my life. And um, the boss was ready to fire me. My wife was ready to leave me. Nothing was going well in my life when I got here. And, and she says, well, come on outside and let's smoke a cigarette and talk about it. And what she did was she got me to open up, and I was tight. Man, I, I was like a sealed can. I wasn't going to open up because if you knew who I really was and what I was really like, y'all would kick me out of AA. And, and she took me outside, and she got me to open up, and she said, tomorrow night, it's Wednesday night. She says, we've got a, a, a step study. It's not, it's not a meeting. It's a group of people from my home group. We meet each week and we're going through the steps and we're getting ready to start over and it's a good time for you to join in your sponsor and his sponsor and a lot of good people you know are already going to this so I want you to join us I said yes ma'am the next night what I experienced was I got to hear people that had been sober longer than I was alive at that time I got sober when I was 25 and they talked about how they worked the first step how they were powerless over alcohol that their lives had become unmanageable how that by trusting and relying on a God of their understanding and taking some other simple steps, their lives changed. I got to hear how they formed a relationship with God. I got to hear how a third step, that complete surrender. I got to hear how they did four steps. I wasn't allowed to talk, but I could listen. And I began to be a good listener. I teach you to be a good listener. And, and I began to listen. My brain began to slow down. It always used to race, thinking about what I wanted to say begin to slow down and I begin to really absorb the spiritual nature of what they were giving me. They were spoon feeding me the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My began, I began to have a whole nother opinion about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was something I had to do, it was something I wanted to do. I had a desire to change. I wanted to change. What that looked like for me was my life began to change, things got better, I was getting a better job at work. I'd lost that job, I knew I was gonna lose it, but I got a better job at work where I work now. And, and my wife was good. We weren't going to leave. Um, things were looking good. And, man, life was looking good. I moved from that home group. We built us a stick-built house out in Johnston County. So we were moving from Garner out to where I live now. Life was looking good in AA. And about 
seven years, I guess it was. I was sober about seven years by this time. But it was 1989 we moved in that house. By 1992, um, we were noticing she was having some problems. And so she went to the doctor, and we found out she was suffering from some mental illness that was in her family. And by 1993, we were separating and divorcing. And, and it just rocked my world. I mean, it broke my heart. It rocked my world. I grieved harder than I've ever grieved for anybody in my life. And, and I was still active in AA. I'm still going to meetings. I'm sponsoring people and doing everything I can. But, man, it just broke my heart. It just knocked my feet out from under me. And I was sitting upstairs. I couldn't even sleep in the bedroom we had together. I was sleeping upstairs in the guest bedroom. And I was having trouble sleeping. And, and reading was one of the things that helped. And I remember reading in the 12 and 12. I got back in the 11th step in the 12 and 12. And I ran across the prayer of St. Francis. And as I read through that prayer really slow, I began to understand it wasn't just about me and my hurt. Maybe what she was going through and how she was hurting. Maybe what her parents were going through and my parents were going through. And I began to understand that selfishness and that self-centeredness, the depth and the level that it was inside of me and how they began to open up. And I think God took that opportunity to allow me to change, almost like a butterfly coming from a caterpillar in a cocoon to come out to have wings, is I began to see things differently. After that, I joined what I'd already shared with you about the Willow Springs 12-step group, and I joined that group, and I met Jerry and, and all them and, and Tony Smith, and, and we all got in there about 1994, I think, when Doug and I was there. It was 1994. I think Jerry had come either at that time or right after. And my whole life began to change. The stuff that was really dark in my life began to become light. Work was now, not only did I get a job, full-time job, I wasn't a contract employee anymore. I had got a full-time job with the company I work at now. I've been there for 35 years. And, and that right there is, is testimony itself of the transformation power of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and good sponsorship. And, and what that looked like for me was when I got through that process, I went back to school. They were sending me back to Wake Tech to take classes because they wanted to move me from a electrical instrumentation. Uh, automation was taken over, and all the technology that we grew up with was now going into computers and different types of automation technology. And so they wanted me to go back to school to train me on how to work on this stuff. And so they sent me back to Wake Tech to take engineering courses so that I could fill in the gaps that I had in my education so I could do the work they wanted me to do. Man, what an opportunity for a guy like me. Here I'm a drunk, never going to amount to anything, and I'm working for a world-class pharmaceutical company that's going to take the time to train me and give me an opportunity of a lifetime. How does that happen? That only happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. That stuff don't happen every day, not for a guy like me. So I'm going back to Wake Tech, and I'm doing all this. I'm still hurting. I'm trying to get over it. I'm starting to date in AA and everything. My sponsor at the time, Mike C., was telling me, so, you know, dating in AA is like, you know, it's kind of like playing with dynamite. Make sure you got a long fuse, you know. Um, <laughs> You gotta have a lot of patience is what he meant was and 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 I, I I understand what he meant was you see, you know, we're not a cesspool of mental health here, you know. You might, might be better off picking somebody out of AA and like, you know, they're all so cute and they hug so well, man, I'm I'm good, you know. And anyway, so I um I'm going I'm going to classes at Wake Tech and I get in this calculus class and I'm sitting there and all these other girls there are doing like the rest of us, we're checking each other out like in high school, you know, we're thirty some years old, we're looking around. And um it's night school, and, uh, and this young lady walks in, and she carries herself different than all these other women, and she walks in, and she sits down, and she's focused. She is laser-focused on that blackboard and the instructor, and he starts going, and he says, open your books. Now, look, she didn't have a book. 
And I'm waiting because I know when them guys are going to jump in there. There's an empty chair there next to her. I said, them guys are going to jump in that chair. I need to move, move quick, boy. So I grabbed my book, and I'd sit right there next to her, and I says, do you mind if I join you and share my She says, no, thank you so much. And so we sit down, we read all that, and I'm watching her. She won't look at me. I'm looking at her, you know. She ain't looking at me. She's focusing, and we're doing through, and the instructor gets finished and everything. And I'm thinking, man, i got to figure out how to open this line up here. You know, I'm not good at this because she's, she's not a drunk. You know, I don't know how to talk to her. Um, and, and she's normal. So um, I said, i got to come up with a good line. I said, hey, you know, I travel with my work. Is there any chance I could get your phone number maybe, um, you know? And uh, she said, yeah. Well, class got over. We left. I didn't get her number. Well, Fran hit about this time, and, and they canceled our class. She went and took a marketing class. I went and took physics class. whole other semester later, here we are in the same scenario, same class, same everything. She don't have a book. I have a book. I said, it seems like we've been here before. I sat down. She smiled. I shared my book. I got her phone number that night. You can best believe that. We became study buddies. He's talking about my family. So this, we, we've had what I was like. We know what happened. Let's talk a little bit about what, what it's like now. So I met this young lady, and we became study buddies. We're good friends for over a year, well over a year. We used to sit in the library. We'd go in these private rooms in the back of Wake Tech in the library, and we would go in there and close the door so we could talk, because you're not supposed to talk in the library. And we would make jokes about the people that we were dating. Man, wait till you hear about this guy I went out this weekend. I said, wait till you hear about this girl I went out this weekend. And we were just comparing notes and laughing about how crazy these people are, how hard it is to date out here and find anybody worthwhile, you know. And we're still just taking, we're doing homework together. We're fighting calculus together. We're doing good. And, um, and I walk into the library one day, and she's already there, and she's sitting in one of these little half things, you know. There's like a desk on each side, and there's a bar. And, and I can see the top of her head, and I'm walking in the library, and I'm looking for her, and I see her. And about the time she looks up, and she's got these beautiful blue eyes, and she locks on me, and them eyes light up. And I said, hmm, that ain't how a girl looks at a study buddy, you know. I might be slow, but I ain't stupid, you know. She thinks a little more of me than an old boy, a good old boy studying calculus with her, you know. And um, she, not long after that, the first time I went on a date with her, I talked to my sponsor, Mike, at the time. I told her I wanted to go out with her and think. He said, well, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to tell her who and what you are. So we planned on going to the state fair, so we got there and we meet, and I said, there's something I need to tell you. She said, oh, Lord, what's he going to do? She's thinking, what's this guy going to tell me? He's going to tell me he's not. He's going to tell me something. And I said, no, not none of that. I said, I just want you to know that I'm an alcoholic. I'm a sober alcoholic. I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for 10 years now. And I said, um, I go to a lot of AA meetings. I'm active in AA. It's a big part of my life. And if you think you want to be a part of that, I would like to take this relationship to the next level if you think you would. But if you don't, I'm okay with just being friends because I know it's a lot to take on. And she smiled. She said, I'd love to. And we, we started dating. Um, we changed our friendship to relationship. And we got married in 2000 down in Manio at Elizabeth Ian Gardens. Beautiful wedding. All the family was there. We had a nice honeymoon over at Ocracoke. And so life's going on. And she's, she's you know, I'm second marriage, her first marriage. She's in her 30s. So her clock's ticking. So we got to get pregnant, you know. And so I'm good with that. I like the process to get that done, you know. So um, I, uh, I jumped right on that. And um, we get pregnant. We get pregnant, and, um, and we're so happy. We're excited, man, but we're waiting. We've got to wait three months. You can't say nothing for three months. That's the rule, you know. So we're just busting at the seams to tell somebody, you know, because we're just super excited. And um, three months come, we start telling everybody everything's doing good. 
fourth month's come and we lose the baby. And um, it absolutely crushed me. Most people say, oh, they get by with that all the time. Well, you got to realize I'm my only child. My only chance at carrying on is that if we have a kid. So the worst case scenario came to me was, God, why do you take my first child? I may not have another child. I may not have another shot at this, God. Why in the world would you take my one and only child? Why would you do that? I'm going to AA. I'm sober. I'm helping all these guys. I'm doing all this stuff. And the best you can do for me is take my first child. I don't want no part of that. I'm out of here. I'm checking that box. I'm done. And I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get past it. I felt like climbing a gravel hill, and, and every time I get a little ways, the rail would take me back down. I couldn't get grounded. I couldn't find my way back to that God of my understanding that was a loving God and a powerful God, the one that had rescued me from, from drug addiction and alcoholism, the one that put me on solid ground, gave me a wife and a career and a family and opportunity for something else. And now you're going to take my first child? What in the world did I ever do to deserve that? And then I start playing that tape. Well, you did this, Tony. That would probably do it. You know, I went back through that old negative negativity thinking, and um, I talked to my sponsor. I did everything I knew to do. And my buddy Jerry had taken my friend Todd through the big book. I watched them every, every night before the meeting. They'd take off to a room by themselves, you know. I wondered what was going on. They'd go over there, and they'd stay a while, and then they'd come out just in time to meet and greet. And then he'd leave and he'd go over there after the meeting and go in another room with somebody else. And I'm thought, man, what's going on over there? You know, what are they doing? You know? And I watched, I watched the transformation of this boy's personality as he went through a very painful situation and he came out the other side and he was rock solid, laser focused. He had his act together. And I wanted some of that transformation. So I was speaking for Paige down at Came to Believe Group in Rocky Mount, and I had one of them come to Jesus moments from the podium to where that I just got honest about where I was and what was going on, just like I just told you. And after that talk, I caught Jerry out in the hall, and I said, man, I need your help. I said, I saw what happened to Todd, and I need some of that. Is there any way you think you could take me back through that book like you did, Todd, so that I can get some of that? Because so, i got to have a break. I need some relief, man. I, I just can't get beyond this. Jerry said, yeah. Yeah, he said, um, I got some time. He said, how's 5.30 work? I said, yeah, I get off work at 4.30 in the afternoon. 5.30 sounds good. He said, no, Tony, 5.30 a.m. I live in Angeles and Cary. That's a 40, 45-minute ride. I got to get up at 4. I'll take it. He said, be at my house Monday morning. The generosity of men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous who sponsor people and take the time out of their schedule away from their family and their activities to spend time with us to show us a way out is absolutely phenomenal, especially in this conference. But in all the rooms in AA all over the world, this very same language of the heart happens over and over again. What that man did for me was he read line for line, knee to knee out of that big book every morning. This is weekday mornings. Every morning he took time out of his schedule. He had the coffee on. He makes good coffee, by the way. He had the coffee on. Ike, his big dog, would meet me at the door and woof at me when I come in, scare me to death, you big head coming at the door, and you wouldn't know it. And he'd wait till you got right there getting ready to touch the handle, and then he'd go, woof. And I'd jump back and say, Ike, you got me again, man. And um, I'd come in, and Jerry and I would go in his home office there in Cary, when he was in Cary, and um, we'd go in there and we'd sit down, and it was reverence, and we would pray, we'd hold hands and pray. And then he would read, 
And when we got to a point where it was, it was something that was just so crucial for me, I had to interject. I had to say something. And I would share, and he would listen. And then we'd go right back to reading. And we'd get to something that says, when we ask God, he said, that's a prayer. And we'd stop and we'd pray. And then we got to the steps. We worked the step as we got them. We read through this book. And when we got to step two over in we Gnostics, and I began to get the hope that I had lost. By the time we took that third step prayer on our knees, as I'd done many times in my sobriety, but something was different about this time. It was a more reverent time. It was a more su surrender. I mean, the surrender was at depth at this time. And because and I had nothing left. And we got on our knees and we said that third step prayer and we got up and we went right at the fourth step. And he gave me a list of things to do. And the first thing I had to do was make a list of the names of the people. Nothing but the names, Tony. Just put the names. Now, when I wrote four steps in the past, I did it like page 65. I had the columns. I'd draw the lines and I'd try to make everything fit in them lines. That's insane. <laughs> but I did it over and over again. Nobody told me anything different. He said, no, Tony, just make the list of names. And then when we got that done... I am to write a, I am resentful at the top of the page and then write what I'm resentful for. I got a whole page and a half, the whole book if I want to write it. Just write. And when you get done, then we're going to go back and we ask these questions. How did it affect me? How many times did I let fear get in the way? Because I was trusting and relying on me and not on God. I had to learn to trust God again. We prayed and asked God to remove my fears and direct my attention to what he wants me to be. Tracy said, Tony, I want you to list what God wants you to be. He said, I'll give you the first one. He wants you to be sober. The next with me is he wants me to be honest, you know. And, and the thing I got out of all that when I finished was God wants me to be free of fear today. And, and I went through and I put down and I prayed that prayer on 67 with every name I had on there with all these people at work that I thought were trying to take my projects, my job, just all this conspiracy theory stuff in my head that gets up there just suffering seriously from untreated alcoholism. And, and I prayed that prayer, and I plugged their name in everywhere it said them. It says, we ask God, we ask them to help show them the same patience, tolerance, and pity we cheerfully grant a sick friend. I plugged their name in them. For each name, I prayed that prayer. And I went through, and I looked what my part was. Where had I been selfish? Where had I been dishonest? Where had I been afraid? What should I have done instead? I moved on to the part where my conduct over the years past, the sex conduct, and I said, well, you know, I'm pretty good on that. And he says, no. He said, it's conduct at work, at home, and in the community, even in your AA meeting. How do you behave in an AA business meeting? Not well most of the time, by the way. I'm argumentative, defensive, I'm aggressive. Um, I want my way, you know. And uh, where have you been inconsiderate? And I thought all the times that I flirted with waitresses after drunk with my wife sitting right there at the table with me. I thought about all the ways I could be inconsiderate, dishonest, selfish, and afraid. I mean... My God, who thought of this stuff? That's brilliant because that defined everything about me and my personality. I understood exactly what was wrong with me. I had done this before many times. Y'all, I'm 10 years sober when I'm doing this. This ain't the first time I've done this. But it was something about doing it out of the book in that way, in that reverent manner, that it opened a whole nother door for me. And I had another spiritual awakening at 10 years sober, 13 years sober, excuse me, 13 years sober, with my new sponsor, he didn't know it yet because I was getting ready to ask him. But he did all this work. My life's changing. I'm walking around. My chest is out. Life is good. This guy's getting the credit for it. He's doing all the work. Well, that ain't fair, you know. So I went to Jerry and I said, do you think you can sponsor me? He said, yeah. And he says, but I want you to go talk to Mike and I want you to thank him for what he's done. And we'll get busy. And so I did that. I went to Mike and I'd, I'd, I loved Mike. He was the best man at our wedding. And I hated having to do this, but I, I was so impressed with what I mean, the 
the effects were productive. The effects were powerful. This was working. I know this is where God wants me to be. And I sat down and I talked to him and I thanked him for what he did for me this last nine years. I thanked him for being my best friend. I thanked him for being my sponsor. And I did what all the other guys would just leave him. I'd watch him just leave and disappear. They wouldn't say nothing to him. You know, just leave us hanging, you know, whether you're dead or alive. I didn't want to do that, you know. And, and I did it in a way that was respectful, and he so much appreciated that. And what happened was my life began to change. As I went back to work, after we did, we did that eight-step list, we got on the knees, we did a sixth and seventh-step prayer first. And again, I began to open up and begin to become willing. I sat down on the eighth-step list. And then Jerry did something different was we went from that, and we actually wrote out my amends because he knew I was so nervous and afraid because I'm, I'm approaching professional people who I can lose my job with what I'm about to tell them and what I did and how I treated them and what I'm about to do cost me my job, my career. And we wrote that stuff out. So if I got nervous and nothing else, I could read it off that paper. And there was a many a time I had to do just that. If I hadn't written it down, I'd have botched that amends. I was to make a, an appointment with these people. My office or theirs, I didn't care, or somewhere neutral. Most of them came to my office, sometimes I went to theirs. And I sat down and I did exactly what it was. I explained to them how I felt and what caused me to treat them the way they did, just like the book says. I followed the directions and into action on exactly how to make amends. And, and I went to them a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing my former ill feelings and expressing my regret. And I shared what I did wrong and what I wanted to do right and how could I make it right. And then I had to listen. And whatever they said, I had to be willing to do. And I was willing to do that. And those relationships, every one of those men and women looked at me and said, you know, I had respect for you, a lot of respect for you before you did this. Now I have even more respect for you. If there was anything I did that caused you to feel that way, let me apologize. And I was supposed to listen. I was supposed to interject. Don't, don't acknowledge them. Just let them say what they need to say and then go back to my amends. And I did that every time. And, and when I walked away from that, I was free. I didn't worry about what they were saying behind my back anymore. I didn't wonder what was going on when people were laughing in the corner of the room at work knowing it was me. It had nothing to do with me. I was so self-centered. It transformed and changed the whole trajectory of my career, my marriage, my effectiveness in my home group, being a good service member, getting involved in general service, involved in the inner group, involved in corrections. My first corrections experience, I was at Johnson, um, Johnson County Group when I first moved out there, and uh, I got invited to go in Johnson Correctional where Joey's going and tell my story, and it was a Sunday afternoon, it was hot, and I remember going through that gate, and these men, I mean, they were men. I'm talking about men. And they were running back and forth. They were over there pumping iron, man. These guys were in the yard. They were having a big time running. They'd run by me. I felt about that big right there, man. I said, Lord have mercy. These are real men in here. And we went in that cafeteria, and the fans were running. The ice machine was dumping, and I'm supposed to tell my story in here. And I'm sober a couple of years, and I'm thinking, my God, how's this going to go? I'll tell you how it went. When John got up there, and he introduced me, and he sat down. And them fans calmed down. That ice machine quit dumping. Those men got quiet. And I just simply told my story. And when we got done, I don't know how they felt. I felt wonderful. I said, man, I want some more of this right here. This is great. And I realized the power of the language of the heart. Just like it says in working with others, that practical experience proves that nothing with so much as sure immunity from drinking as intensive, continuous work with other alcoholics that works when other activities fail. My sponsor said, don't take on them other activities. <laughs> Go help another drunk. 
and Bill Wilson talked about that when he go to the hospital on a day when his, his depression was so deep and his anxiety so great, but he would go to the hospital upon leaving there after talking to a man, he was amazingly lifted up and rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. And that's exactly what has happened for me. We hear this all the time. It's published on the back of this, this flyer we have, our pamphlet for the, um, for the conference. I'm going to close with two things. The, the thing that I want you to understand is, is that, that Samantha and I will be happily married this October 23 years. We have a beautiful daughter, Brooke, who's 19. She started college. She's also going to be a Wake Tech alumni, it looks like. She's enrolled in Wake Tech for a two-year transfer program to NC State, taking criminal psychology. Got up at 3 o'clock the other morning. She was working on a project. She couldn't figure out how to duplex print and get it to print right. And I let her go as long as I dared. And then she finally was getting so stressed out, I said, Hey, honey, have you ever checked your duplex printing? And she said, what do you mean? I said, is it set for long or short? She goes, long. I said, change it to short. She printed. She said, I love you so much. Because it solved her problem for that. That's what that looks like today. That's what practicing these principles and all my prayers looks like today. At work, it, I, I'm just, I'm, I don't think I could get through telling you about my work. But the, the changes that has happened for me in my professional life as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is absolutely unbelievable that a, a, a guy like me who was a welder and electrician could, could manage an automation department with engineers coming out of Baylor and NC State and other places like that. I'm a Wake Tech grad. Um, you know, only, only in Alcoholics Anonymous can things like that happen. Our little group working with others, we chose that name, Cherry's Groups, There is a Solution. Love that. Love on 25. When they read every time we have our reading, we read the one I just quoted. And the second we always do is on the back of this thing is both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If we persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, there were things that come to us when we realize we put ourselves in God's hands are better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you presently live in a new and wonderful world no matter what your present circumstances. First time I heard that, I, man, I loved it. And when I, I've been going into central prison since 2001. Jerry and a bunch of us went in there and we started that group back up with Tom. There was 18 of us and we were going to do a rotating committee and when it settled down it was me and Jerry. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the rest of them but Jerry and I were there. And um, I learned so much about humanity and about love for our fellow man and about love and service and, and listening to Tom and the effectiveness of what we're doing in there. And we went in there and we, we had that group set up like we did our home group. We studied the tradition, a step, the stories. I took a group of guys, my friend Tim R., that's a member of Jerry's home group. We were talking about the third step one time, and I didn't know if he was paying attention to what we were doing in that prison that night or not, but he shared something that, you know, I do it all the time, so I didn't think much about it, but it was, it was something to him. We had 13 guys. We're reading out of the big book together. I'm taking these guys through the book, and we stop at the third step prayer. And all 13 of us got on our knees, we held hands in a circle, and we prayed the third step prayer, and we all got back up, and I had gone to Dollar General and bought those little black speckled composition books and a thing of pens, and Mr. Simmons let me bring them in, and we passed them out, and these guys started writing their four steps. That, that just don't happen without good sponsorship and direction is showing you how to carry an effective message in a prison. I got to watch these guys' lives change, them write amends letters to the people in their lives to go and do what they could. If they could get a visitor to come in and do a personal amends, they would. 
I got to watch this one gentleman. He had two boys, and he was so worried about his boys. We had a banquet one time, and they have this this thing. It's um, Proverbs 226, and if you know what that is, if you don't, go read it. It'll tell you exactly what this program is about. It's about reuniting families and cutting down on recidivism in the family of, of people that are incarcerated. And this young man was sitting in there in this banquet, and I'm watching it, and he walks in with his two boys who are in a part of that. And all he ever wanted to do when I was sponsoring him was to see his boys. And here he is with his boys. They're doing this presentation at this banquet about this program, 226, and I got to see him be with his boys. Now, how much did that warm my heart? It let me know that we're doing the right thing for the right reason. We just need to keep doing it. God will show us these miracles as they begin to happen. That's what happens when you're willing to go behind the walls and do what we're called to do. The last thing I'm going to close with, and I want to thank you so much. I want to thank the committee, Paige, and everybody for giving me an opportunity to do this. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And this is one of Paige's favorite things and mine too. Our friend Jim F. talks about this at the end of his talk, and it's Sunday morning, so I think it's appropriate for a spiritual meeting on Sunday morning. This coming Sunday in the churches of many of us, there will be read the portion of the Gospel of Matthew, which recounts the time John the Baptist was languishing in the prison of Herod. And hearing the works of his cousin Jesus, he sent two of his disciples to say to him, Are thou he who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Christ did as he did so often. He did not answer them directly, but wanted John to decide for himself. And so he said to the disciples, Go and report to John what you have heard, and what you have seen, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead rise, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In Alcoholics Anonymous, I see the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the poor be risen. And just like you'll hear many of them, we're all overpaid in every area of our life. Thank you so much for listening.